Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Phonication, the podcast dedicated to providing context to that one song by the Bloodhound Gang. I'm your host, Jack, and I am incredibly excited to be putting out another episode for you guys. But first, a couple things I want to mention, and I mean it, literally just two. So firstly, I want to reiterate what I announced in my last episode, that 100% of my Patreon proceeds for the month will be sent to charities supporting the Australian bushfires and bat preservation. So if you would like to support both this podcast and Animals in Need, please do consider going over to Foundation's Patreon. And I also have additional animal facts that I post over there, and I'll of course be uploading proof of the donation over there as well. I am planning on having Patreon proceeds being donated as like a, a recurring thing rather than just a one-off. So if you have any animal charities in mind that you recommend, my DMs are obviously open. On to something more lighthearted though, I wanna bring up the second thing, which is the logo. <laughs> I recently had somebody tell me that they couldn't figure out what was going on with the logo. They looked at it from every angle, but all they could see was two bunnies going at it. So they wanted to know what my logo was, since of course it couldn't possibly actually be two bunnies getting laid. And <laughs> you guys, it broke me to have to put on my customer service mask and professionally explain what essentially boiled down to it's definitely two bunnies fucking because I thought it would be funny and also get the point across. <laughs> I'm also not so secretly hoping that when my stickers get here that I can convince multiple people to put two bunnies humping onto objects they own because that would be such a bright moment in my life. <laughs> but looking back, I actually probably should have chosen a different animal for my logo considering I'm scared of rabbits. Anyways, on to the episode. I am sorry if that was lengthy. We're sort of doing bats again, but this time in the ocean. And as you've probably guessed by a strenuous detective work, we're talking about rays. And saying bats doesn't make me completely wrong because rays refer to the superorder called batoidae, which has the word bat in it. <laughs> but the superorder is, as the term superorder implies, very large. It includes manta rays, stingrays, devil rays, skates, sawfish, guitarfish, it nearly includes sharks, considering how closely they're related, which is pretty cool. I definitely want to do a shark episode sometime. I should look up when Shark Week is. I think it's in April. By the way, just like sharks, rays are old and didn't change a whole lot evolutionarily. Rays can be traced all the way back to the Jurassic period. Like I said, because of how big a super order is, I'm going to narrow it down to manta rays and compare them a little bit to stingrays, since that's super cool and something that a lot of people are interested in. So that order is called Miliobatiforms. There are two species of manta rays, the giant oceanic manta ray, manta birostris, and the reef manta ray, manta alfredi. Needless to say, researching these guys has absolutely had me craving some fettuccine alfredo. But both of these species are just absolutely fucking massive. The larger of the two, naturally the giant oceanic manta, can reach seven meters in wingspan. And if you're used to the imperial system like me and you need that translated, that is 23 feet wide. It is huge. And it blows my mind every single time just finding out how big some ocean animals are because they look so small in the vast expanse of empty water. And then I see them swim next to like a human and my perspective snaps back into place violently. 
And then I just feel like a weak little toddler slipping into an existential crisis. The other species, the reef manta, is much smaller at a pathetic five and a half meters or 18 feet wide. Second place is just first loser. So to compare, stingrays are comprised of 220 species, the largest of which is the giant freshwater stingray. One specimen they found was 2.4 meters across and 7.9 feet long with her tail. Which, don't get me wrong, that is genuinely very large and terrifying, but it's just minuscule compared to a manta ray. But if you find yourself swimming next to a giant manta ray, you don't actually have to be terrified. They don't eat human. Mantas are filter feeders that eat zooplankton, like some whales. Nor will they try to attack you. I'm not even sure how they would attack you if they chose to, like maybe with a headbutt or a, a wing slap. They don't have stingers or barbs like stingrays do. And honestly, due to ecotourism, manta rays have grown pretty accustomed to diving humans to the point where they're completely unbothered by a presence. And oftentimes they're curious enough to actually approach and interact with humans. So it's absolutely possible to go and hang out with mantas in a way that's safe for you and the animal. Just do your research and do it with an ethical company. Some of them even have proceeds going towards research and conservation. And if you are one of the few lucky people who gets to have the incredibly rare encounter with the pink manta ray, you are absolutely obligated to take pictures for scientists <laughs> because there is a single, one single pink, fabulous male manta ray swimming around off the coast of Australia. He's been affectionately nicknamed Inspector Clouseau after the detective from the Pink Panther series. I, I love that. As far as researchers can tell, there's nothing wrong with him. There's nothing different about him aside from being pink, and they can't figure out why he's pink. After analyzing samples of his skin, they've proposed and thrown away multiple hypotheses. The current speculation is that there's a genetic mutation causing pink melanin expression, but honestly, we don't have an answer. And Inspector Clouseau doesn't care. He's just living his best, brightest life under the sea. Also, another mystery about manta rays is breaching. I'm sure you've all seen videos of whales breaching the surface and doing dramatic leaps to show off, but whales do that in order to breathe. Mantas don't need to breach the surface in order to breathe. They, they have gills. So as for why they do it, all we have are guesses. The most likely answer being that they're trying to serve those whales a slice of humble pie. Unfortunately, we may not get to experience the grace of manta breaching or go diving with mantas for much longer. Both species are listed as vulnerable to extinction on the IUCN red list. A lot of species of stingrays are also listed as either threatened or vulnerable, but a large amount of them don't have enough data to determine if they're fine or critical or maybe even already extinct. The reasons for their status are the expected offenders. Pollution, entanglement in fishing nets, and despite being listed as a protected species, targeted killing of manta rays in order to cut out their gill rakers for use in traditional Chinese medicine, which breaks my heart. Like why does traditional Chinese medicine always require the most at-risk animals like rhinos and elephants too? And I would be a tiny bit less mad about it if it actually worked, but it doesn't. In the case of manta ray gill rakers, the demand for them started increasing significantly in the very early 2000s. They were never historically used in traditional Chinese medicine, so I don't know how it fits into something termed traditional. Anyways, 
An investigation in 2012 published by the Scientific American determined that practitioners were selling the gill rakers in South China markets for 500 US dollars per kilogram and advertised them as a soup ingredient that could boost the immune system and push toxins out of the bloodstream. And also thrown in as possible medical benefits are curing cancer, curing chicken pox, healing throat and skin conditions, kidney issues in men, infertility, so naturally, a secret cure-all. The investigation also discovered that the claims are not backed up by reliable medical science, as expected, but nor are they supported by traditional Chinese medicinal texts. There is an official text that lists all 6,400 TCM remedies, and gill rakers, known locally as peng yusai, is not used in a single one of them. Younger TCM practitioners outside of that South China area had never even heard of it being used. So it's not like it's a recent thing that's being taught to those studying TCM. Worse, after being interviewed, practitioners who sold manta ray gill rakers literally admitted that it's ineffective and there are alternatives available. So draw whatever conclusions you want, but my conclusion is that it's a money-making scam. All right, I am, I'm sorry for the downer, but I obviously can't just gloss over something so important. But we're back to the fun stuff now, I promise. And by fun stuff, yeah, that's a euphemism. I'm definitely talking about sex. <laughs> so you know that old adage where girls are supposed to play hard to get and have a trail of boys running after her? You know that bullshit perpetuated in like the 50s or something? Manta rays took on that mentality and never grew out of it. <laughs> their courtship ritual begins usually near their cleaning stations, which is, it's where they like to hang out while smaller fish who eat parasites and dead skin and shit clean them off. Sharks do it too. But yeah, a female will be hanging out at a cleaning station, taking a bath, and she'll decide it's time for sex. She's horny, sounding fairly human-esque so far. But unlike a human, she can't just grab a toy or something to pleasure herself. She needs a man, but not just any man. She needs every man so that she can have her pick of the litter. So she's sitting there in the bath and she releases some pheromones, that single and ready to mingle pheromone, the sitting at a bar with my less attractive friend that I'm ignoring pheromones. So a male takes the bait. He smells the pheromones and he approaches her and she just bails. <laughs> she zooms away in search of another man with the first male chasing behind her. And when that new male takes the bait, she does the same thing until eventually she's got a train of sex crazed zombie manta rays sprinting after her and she's darting around rocks, leaping out of the water, doing flips and shit, judging the male's ability to keep up with her. And this keeps going for hours as the males start dropping out from exhaustion until she's left with the final tribute. The last man standing gets laid. And after all the hours of chasing and dancing and extended foreplay in a marathon obstacle course, they have sex for a whopping 30 seconds, <laughs> which, I mean, that's completely understandable. Who wants to have sex after that much strenuous activity? But the female is <laughs> some kind of warrior or something because she is apparently completely unsatisfied with those 30 seconds. And in a couple days, she'll hop in the bath and do the whole thing over again. <laughs> that would suck so hard to be a manta ray. Imagine the only way you get laid is after six hours of cardio. <laughs> and the sex isn't even that great. Females routinely get seriously injured from sex because in order to hold on to the female during sex without the benefit of opposable thumbs, 
the male has to bite her fins super hard. For some reason, almost always the left fin. <laughs> but then she will have to stay perfectly still and then he'll pump and dump. Males do not provide paternal care. So that's just, it's not great. <laughs> Anyways, scientists theorize that the courtship ritual is so extra because manta rays typically give birth every four or five years. The female can store sperm from multiple males for many, many years and then release them when the vibes are right. Then the gestation period for a female is about a year, so that's quite a lot of time in between each birth. And speaking of gestation, manta rays are ovoviparous, which is a really annoying word, but it means that they rely on internal fertilization rather than many fish who push out eggs and then the male swims over and fertilizes them. Then the pups develop in the eggs, or in their case, leathery looking pouches, inside of the mother, reliant on the egg yolk, then they'll hatch out of the egg and be birthed live as fully developed and independent pups without the aid of a placenta. This is similar to a lot of shark species, by the way. And side note, a pregnant reef manta ray was the receiver of the first ever contactless underwater ultrasound scanner. I feel like that's pretty neat. Now, to compare manta ray sex to stingray sex, it's, it's very, very similar. They do the mating train chase ritual just as manta rays do, the only difference being that stingrays don't really have cleaning stations. They just sit around in their filth, so the sex can start anywhere. But stingray sex did make the news a couple times. First, a blue-spotted ribbon tail ray gave birth to a set of twins, which is incredibly rare. Second, Winnipeg was shook when three stingrays died during a remarkably aggressive mating train at the zoo, presumably in front of horrified visitors. The exhibit opened in May, which is peak mating season, and I guess they wanted to open with a splash. The zoo was forced to essentially trick the rays into thinking that it wasn't mating season anymore by reducing the amount of daylight the exhibit gets and then cooling the waters so they would think it was like fall. In summary, they actually gave those boys a cold shower. <laughs> and cold showers is where I leave you all until next week. Don't forget to follow Fonication on Instagram and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a review. It really does help. And consider becoming a patron at Patreon, where I'll be uploading all sorts of cool things like other animal facts that don't make it into the podcasts. And as a reminder, all proceeds from July will be donated to Australian bushfires and bat preservation. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week. Bye.